Welcome to People with Purpose. So many people are looking for meaning, but they don't know where to start. Imagine a world where everyone could just get their purpose out of them and then actually make it happen. I'm David Roberts, and I believe that we all have a purpose, and with focus and a little help, people with purpose make a difference. And this show is where these stories come to life. So welcome to another episode of People with Purpose. Uh, today I'm very happy to be joined by Richard Stone, who is a chartered construct- construction manager. I always mess up the start, the intro bit. It's, it's, it's the easiest thing to do, and yet I always mess it up. So I, I always say, easy for me to say. Uh, so um, he's a chartered construction manager, uh, big big on building, and uh, basically he's a developer, property investor, uh, a drone pilot I read on your profile, which is, uh, we might need to get into that. Uh, but um, I know Richard through uh, through public speaking, and I know Rich is a very passionate uh, public speaker and uh, interested in, in giving a bit back and, and supporting people coming through, uh, you know, people, youth work, that kind of thing, and making a transition into to adult life. So we'll probably get to explore that a little bit and he's also a fellow podcaster as well so uh so but enough of my uh, yabbering on uh, richard welcome to the show thanks for coming on yeah welcome thank you for having me it's uh, it's good to uh, get in a booth and get something recorded with you yeah exactly exactly cool so um so what are you working on at the minute what am i working on so working on we've got an sa unit we're trying to get finished and get ready to go live um i've got four different client projects which are all new build sites um, that we're doing cost plans, um, like pre-construction stuff, programs and procurement on. Um, but I'm also working on writing a training program to teach people project management and all of the stuff that goes into that, that they don't get taught when they do um, traditional kind of like property investing courses. Um, because it's all the stuff that they need to know to keep them sort of safe and compliant and get them the results that they want really. Yeah. Um, which is what I've sort of spent 40 years this year doing is construction management. So Excellent. Congratulations. Bit of a milestone. What's 40 years? <laughs> Ruby? Do you know what? Yeah, it might be. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe go and have a Ruby to celebrate then. I'll go and have a Ruby to celebrate. <laughs> That's probably more milestone. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Good. So, but you are right. There's loads involved in, in property. And it, I was quite surprised, even if you're sort of renovating your own house, there's certain obligations that you've got as a kind of a householder that so many people don't don't know anything about. Yeah, they don't. It's, and, you know, and it's it's like anything, isn't it? You don't know what you don't know. And that's, you know, and unfortunately, the problem with that, though, is that if something goes wrong, the HSE's attitude to that is ignorance is no defence because their attitude is you should, have, you should have worked out you didn't know what you needed to do and gone and found out about it. So, yeah, it's kind of about actually sort of getting people to understand what that is. but. Of course, the minute you're doing something that isn't in your own home or that of a family, you're seen to be a professional contractor. Whether you have the skills or experience to do that is another matter. Um, and it's about kind of sort of trying to distill sort of 40 years of sort of construction management experience down into sort of a more sort of bite-sized um, product that actually people can can come along um, and get some education on um, so that actually they do do stuff compliantly because... You know, at the end of the day, tradesmen, you know, they're all human beings, they've all got families and they all deserve to go home safely at night. And there's no reason why they can't if stuff's set up properly. So it's just about sort of trying to trying to give people the tools that they need in order to be able to actually do it beyond just having a hammer to bang some nails in and a saw to cut a bit of wood. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah, and understanding what those obligations are in a, in a kind of a, yeah, if it can be packaged in a way that's actually... Uh, interesting and engaging, uh, but also really gets the message home, you know, that, that there are risks and you have got responsibilities, but, you know, with the right sort of help and the right sort of support, you know, you can make sure you create a safe environment for people to come in and work. That'd be a really helpful thing. Yeah, that's 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 kind of the challenge, really, is trying to make it... I mean, it's something I'm really passionate about, construction management, but, you know, everybody's got their own individual passions. I don't expect other people to have that same passion. But if they can just sort of take on board the kind of, like, the key messages, the key sort of facts, what the, the things that, that they must do, um, and it's not just for people working sort of on smaller projects. It's, you know, there's people doing million-pound projects that don't actually understand what's, what's actually required. Um, and, you know... People are not going to volunteer a load of information if somebody rocks up as a customer and says, yeah, by the way, come and do this job. 
so stuff's just going to get missed. So it's just about filling that gap on on the, the kind of education journey for people that want to sort of use property investment as a vehicle to sort of secure their financial future for their family, really. No, that sounds good. Oh, I might have to sign up for that then because I've been thinking about, I, I've not, I've not, I've sort of looked into property a little bit and had a little bit of training on property, but never really taken the plunge into, you know, buy to lets or, or, or whatever it might be. So, um, so yeah, I've always sort of shied away from the, I suppose it's been about the kind of what, what's the risk and not really understanding what the risk is I'm taking on. And that's sort of been a bit of a blocker for me. So, um, so you'll have to put my name down. Yeah, cool. And that's, I think that's the key. You know, in, I mean, risk management, you know, we've all got our own kind of internal risk barometer and, you know, it's so, so subconscious. We don't even think about it, but on a journey to the supermarket, you'll do about 200 risk assessments, whether you're on foot or whether you're in a car. Because every time you do something, there's kind of an internal risk assessment about, well, actually, is that safe? Well, it's no different. It's just on a slightly different scale with different things to consider. So, yeah, that's the idea. The, the real challenge is kind of, A, trying to make it succinct because my Myers-Briggs type is I'm a detail-driven person, which is a bit of a challenge to start with. It's something I'm really passionate about. Second, but I know for a lot of people, it's a really dull subject. So it's about trying to pick out the key points use experience and stories that I've sort of experienced throughout my life and things that I've witnessed and seen to get that across. But in a way that actually it lands first and foremost, because communication only works if the message lands. And, but in a way that actually is lighthearted and people sort of go to know what, actually I enjoyed that three days. I don't want people to be going away going, gee, three days, well, it was a typical health and safety course, because that's not what it's about. It's about, from health and safety is only one part of it. It's about making sure that, People know their numbers and they understand what they're going to make at the beginning. And the whole point is if it's procured and set up properly, that's what they get at the end. Not, we think we're going to make X and, oh, my God, we've had loads of car crashes along the way and we end up with X minus 50 grand and we only made £5,000 for a month's worth of pain. It's, it's not worth it. It's about actually implementing systems to actually give you the outcome at the end that you thought you were going to get at the start. And, again, that's one of the things that isn't really taught. It's kind of, it's almost like a crash bang wallet. Yeah, you just need to get on board, get a builder, get it done. And they gloss over the whole construction phase, which is actually, can be the most challenging and quite often the most risky part of the whole process. So absolutely, that's the plan. That's, that's, but I mean, it comes back to my kind of core why, which is helping others. Mm, mm. That's what I enjoy doing. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, go on then. So tell us a bit about your story then. So how did you end up in construction and uh, and doing the kind of thing that you're doing now oh wow okay how did i end up in construction uh so my dad was in construction he's a qs um he decided to do an extension on our house when we lived in birmingham uh, which was where i was born well that sound like a brummy thankfully um and i was in my first footing at five years old and sort of i helped my dad do that we we got the extension finished um i mean obviously i just did like a little bit of digging and then like moving stuff around and he brought trades in to do to do all the different stuff. Um, but there's certain things along the way of doing that that I really remember has been really poignant. Um, but the biggest one was the sense of achievement for creating something tangible through hard work at the end, which was that we actually built an extension to our house, which sort of more than doubled the footprint of the house. Um, and for me, that was a very, very, very real thing. I'm a very kind of visual person. I'm a very kind of like drawings, tangible stuff. Um, I'm not so good with words, um, written or um, spoken. Um, I, I've never been diagnosed as dyslexic, and I don't know if I, if I actually am. Um, one of the challenges I have is that my brain goes faster than my mouth, <laughs> which is, can be a bit of an affliction. Um, but I knew from that day that I wanted to go into building. Um, my dad, to be fair, tried to discourage me because construction, whilst it's been good for my family, um, it's always the first industry into recession and the last one out. Um, but, and he was just like, look, whatever you want to do, just be happy what you want to do. So we tried to discourage me from doing it. Um, that didn't work. So I went into, because I got a job when we moved, um, when I was eight, I got a job in a pub, aged 11, bottling up. And then, because I worked hard, and like my mum and dad, all they said to me was, look, just turn up be on time and work hard. You don't know, like you know how to wash up, but you don't know anything else about working in the kitchen. So just do that and just go from there. So that's all I did. I was always early. 
I was always, whenever I finished the task, I always asked what I could do next. And I was just polite. And I just, that was it really. And that job washing up ended up being like going from one night to three nights a week. Then I started doing bottling up before school. Um, then I started doing waiting and they were doing outside bars. And the landlord's son had got a building company. Um, we'd got three, he's got a building company, a scaffold company and a landscaping firm. And he, he sort of clocked that I was quite hard working. And um, a couple of Saturdays, he was like, do you want to come and give us a hand? But I was like, like yeah. I, to be honest, I didn't know how to say no. I was like, yeah, right. And a little bit of me was like really excited. And a little bit of me was really bricking it. Um, so I did. And I just, I just sort of, and it wasn't even a tactic. I just thought, you know what, I'm just going to turn up and I'll just ask what I can do and I'll just work hard. And from there, it's just kind of, whenever I did that, I always got respected. And the thing that I found really hard when I moved from Birmingham to Bristol, I got bullied quite badly because of my dialect. Um, I was further ahead by four years in some subjects um, than the kids in the, in the class. So the teachers would be like, okay, well, what's this? And I would quick, quickly like whistle from my work and then I'd be bored because I'd have nothing else to do. So yeah, I didn't really fit in except when I was at work because I was respected by my peers because I just got on and worked. And I just, I just loved it. And I, you know, I didn't like the job in the kitchen for the washing up and all this, like the smell of grease and stuff that is on your clothes when you go home. But I loved the teamwork. I loved the fact that it gave me like an opportunity into other jobs. Um, and it reminded me recently when I was reading Rob Moore's book called Opportunity that people will ask you to do stuff at any point during your life. And it might not be something you want to do, but you never know. Firstly, where it might lead to, or who's watching, and that's always, always kind of stuck with me. Like I didn't know that the landlord's son had a building company when I've got a job washing dishes, but that's what, what I ended up doing. And after I've been in construction ever since. I did, I did a year or so in the estate agent um, in the recession, um, selling repo houses. But essentially, I've always been in construction. It's what I've always loved. Um, I've gone from, I've had a quite a kind of, my career looks kind of like someone's ECG graph. I was, um, I went into construction on the tools. I went into into management um, and I was really fortunate the company I worked for invested massively in my personal development. Um, and I went from site manager or training site manager to operations manager before I was 30. Um, and then I got headhunted to go and run three companies for a venture capitalist um, and become MD of those. Um, when I was 31 years old, which for me was like a massive thing. And it's not hard to admit now, but for a long time it was hard to admit. Um, and I think it's probably the amount I've done on personal development has helped me be able to admit it. I took it for the ego. It was a massive, to be headhunted, to be given that opportunity at 31 years old was like, wow, that wasn't just stroking my ego. That was like massively pressing it. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of what it's one of those things. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you might sort of you, you buy something from a store and you get it home and you unbox it and it's like I thought this was going to be really good and it's really pony and it doesn't actually do what I thought it would. Mm. Or you order a meal at a restaurant, you think it's going to be amazing, and it turns up and your steak's cold, or it, you know, it just whatever it is, it, it doesn't turn out how you how you think it's going to. Well, that was pretty much the case when I got got into the company on the first day. It was like, yeah. When I started going through the contracts and stuff, it was quite apparent that what they thought they'd bought in these new acquisitions wasn't the case. Um, so, yeah, a lot of hard work, a lot of stress, a lot of travelling, because I one in um, London, one in a place called Rainford, just outside St Helens, and then one in Bristol. Um, so I was kind of, I was like a bit like a kind of like a boomerang, albeit in a very expensive, very, very fast Mercedes, <laughs> yeah. um, with a fuel card, thankfully. <laughs> Six grand a month in fuel was not coming out of my pocket. Wow. But um yeah, do you know what? It was it was tough, it was really challenging. Um I got followed to um Egypt and someone threatened to shoot me when the company went bang. Um and I nearly went bang with it. Um not that it was anything to do with me. I I went into the company, realised it was like absolutely skint and called the administrator. But I did before I did that, I spoke to all the staff, told all the staff what the situation was, explained all the numbers. Um which was really tough. Um, so yeah, construction's been 
been really good, but I would be lying and I would be doing it a disservice if I said it had been all plain sailing. It's been anything but. But one of the things that I did have for a long time was a, a kind of imposter syndrome that I'd never gone to uni and got a degree. And I was talking to a mentor of mine probably about 10 years ago now. He was like a big sage. He's been like on the main board of a lot of big construction companies in the UK, global ones as well. And he said, but the thing you've got to remember is that you've got such a diverse skill set. You would never have got that if you went and worked for a blue chip. He said, because our, our contracts team know about contracts. Our salespeople know about sales. They don't know about accounts. He said, you know about pre-construction, sales, marketing, accounts, contracts management, claims, programming, planning, logistics, fleet, all of the stuff that goes into running a business successfully because you've had to do all of that stuff in different businesses. You'd never have got that experience if you'd only worked in, in a big blue chip contractor. So I am grateful and I'm very thankful. And I think a lot of that forms and is what makes me have the why that I have because it has been good, you know, yeah, there's been some times that I've been a bit pony, but it's been absolutely brilliant for my family, like financially, um, my wider family as well, not just my my my, my family bubble. Um, and I'm now at the point where I want to support other people, um, get them to understand what construction can give you as a job, get them to understand that just because you become a trader, that's a gateway, that's not the that's not where you end up necessarily. It can be, you know, and, and I know some really good tradesmen that are in their 70s and they've been offered really, really high-paying positions in management and they're not interested. They want to stay doing, one's a chip here and one's a bricklayer and that's what they want to carry on doing, which is fine. But I've also seen people that have come in and I, I joined working as a labourer and, and have gone right to the top and I've seen other people do it and I've seen people do it in big national and lead big national national contractors. So. Just by going and getting a trade doesn't mean that you will always be a plasterer. But there's so much misinformation and so many people don't understand, actually, the plethora of opportunity that exists within construction that I want to get people to understand that and get people in schools to understand that, actually. It doesn't have to be like three foot deep in wet, squelchy mud at the bottom of a trench, you know, because modern construction is very different. So... Part of my why is helping young people to understand that so they can fulfil like, their potential and their opportunity. Um, and then, as I said at the beginning, it's about also leveraging the experience and the training and everything else that I've had in the construction management to, to help people that want to use construction projects as a way to improve their financial wealth as well. And they're kind of, that's sort of the two prongs of my sort of, my why time really is actually helping and serving both of those communities, which are very different. Um, most of the people, most of the typical people in the property investment world tend to be pale, male and stale, mm -hmm. whereas the people that are in the sort of the education environment and the charities that I work with um, are anything but, and it's a really diverse and rich, rich area. And that's one of the reasons that I, I love it and I enjoy it so much because that's something that I'm quite passionate about. And it's something that a lot of people don't understand. A lot of people think diversity is just about actually, well, have we got the right balance of colour on our board? Have we got the right male to female split? But I learned a really, really valuable lesson the day I had my biggest ever imposter syndrome attack. And I got a phone call completely out of the blue from a number I didn't know, but I've never, ever swerved phone calls. I always answer my phone or go back to people. And it was this lady asking me um, if I be prepared to have a Zoom interview and I was like sorry I'm not for hire I don't what do you mean and she said well we'd like you to join join the Lord Mayor of London's Construction Academy Operations Board <laughs> and I was like you what I think you got the wrong number she's like we definitely haven't got the wrong number we know exactly who you are we know exactly what you're about I was like okay send me the invite let me think about it and I said to my wife I come off the phone and I said to my wife what what on earth, like, bleep, you can bleep this bit out, but <laughs> basically, what the bleep do they want me on the board for? And she was like, I've no idea. I don't know. I've, I know as much about it as you. So when I had the interview, I actually asked the question, and it was really interesting because I had an amazing con conversation with Julie Hogbin about this before I had the interview. And she said, look, we'll just ask them. I'm like, why? She said, I know why, because I can see the value you bring. 
but you need to ask them. And they, what they said was that they wanted a diverse board. They didn't want just people that sit on the CSR panel of a big national contractor. They want people that have run big companies, small companies, SMEs. And that was my first kind of sort of insight into actually the different ways that diversity um, can exist and, ne- and, and also needs to exist. Um, and since then, I've read some really fascinating books around that whole subject. Um, and it's something that we need to do a lot more work on. So by working with those charities, it helps me to be able to to learn more about that for my own personal development, which I'm really passionate about, but also to to serve those sort of areas as well. Yeah, yeah. Diversity is a quite a really interesting topic because uh, there's neurodiversity now, which uh, which I know it's always been there, but 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 it's it's growing in profile and and being recognised, and the whole thing about uh, hypersensitivity and and different people in different scenarios needing different kind of environments to work in, and all that sort of stuff. And uh, and it's incredible, really, to think about the number of uh, people who have been unable to take on opportunities or have not thought they were able to take on opportunities because of the experience that they had maybe at school or something like that where they felt they didn't fit in. And it sounds like, I mean, you say you've never been diagnosed with, with anything uh, particularly, but but you talk about imposter syndrome. It sounds like you've been on a on a sort of a similar sort of journey to that. Yeah, absolutely, and I think I think there's a lot, there's a lot to be said for that, and it's why I'm so passionate about neuroscience and NLP. Um, there's a funny slide that I actually put on um, my, when I do keynotes, and it's a picture of me having my brain mapped up in Scotland <laughs> um, because it's some you know I want to know as much about about myself as I can so that I can serve and help people the best I can. Um, and everyone's got different combination of learning style preferences, and. I've had some absolutely fascinating conversations with people who think I'm talking utter claptrap, but we all learn differently. We all take on board information slightly differently. And the more that we can appreciate and understand that, the better that we can build our teams of people that can add tremendous amounts of value, but otherwise perhaps might not have been able to feel like they could be included. But it does give rise to additional challenges, and it does mean that you need to have stronger people in HR departments that understand these kinds of issues rather than just a sort of an absolute, well, they're late for work, they've been late for work four times, bang, right, it's a written warning. Well, let's unpack it and find out the reasons why. And the difficulty is that in modern business, people don't have the time. For the most part, I believe it's a time-based thing to actually to do that. And I think that's really sad because we're missing a, we're missing a massive opportunity to give opportunity to people that otherwise perhaps may get overlooked, but also to have better better businesses as a result of the input of those people. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. And, and I think it is a time thing. I think it is a time thing. But I also think it's uh, it's an education thing as well, because actually that perception of time that you're going to spend, uh, you know, other way of looking at it, invest in actually understanding people what makes them tick what they need from you so that they can be of their best doesn't matter if you've got somebody who's who's you know i mean we're all somewhere on the on the spectrum somewhere along the line if you want to have a better phrase so it doesn't matter where the individual sits it's about understanding them and and then and then using that understanding to provide an environment where they can uh, be successful and and that's something that really drives me actually is 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 you know seeing other people uh, you know do things that they didn't think they were able to do overcome challenges uh, learn and grow you know and you you look around at people who are kind of up there wherever up that up there is relative to where you are and you think well I could never be like that but actually rewind the clock 15 years, five years, six months sometimes. And those people that you're looking up to were kind of right where you are today. And, and they're the kind of people that you need to talk to, listen to and, and work with. Because more often than not, people who've been through a journey like that want to help other people too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we met in a mastermind group. Didn't we? And, you know, I mean, that's one of the th- reasons that I love masterminds. And, and I work with mentors as well. Um, but I'm really passionate about mastermind groups because it's not just about the value you can get, it's about the value that you can give um, through shared experience and through listening to what other people have got. And 
you know, sometimes it is just literally a problem shared is a problem half. But but quite often people around the room have actually been in that situation. And I was talking to this, I was talking about about this to someone the other day, and we were talking about the difference between listening and looking at what a mentor has done and where a mentor is who may be a thousand miles in front of you versus somebody who's in that room around the table who may only be five or ten footsteps in front of you and actually they're both really valid but you do need both because otherwise if you all you have is people that are so far ahead of you it's impossible to make the first step because you don't see where you need to make those first steps Somebody sent me a link to um, a post that Stephen Bartlett did, which I'm a really visual learner anyway. Um, And he, I think it was today actually, put a post on LinkedIn, which was linked back to somebody's Instagram profile. And that was very much a case of somebody literally just carrying one box forward and putting it on top of another one. And actually, that's their first step towards being successful because success is 100 boxes piled on top at the end. And it is about actually having those small steps. And I think we need to. When we're recruiting people, we need to understand, actually, what are the people skills and the traits and personality traits that we need, not just what is the actual physical task that we need someone to do. And, you know, I mean, that's particularly prevalent in construction because obviously we create and we build stuff or we we repair and maintain it. So those skills are essential. But equally, some of the most successful tradespeople that I've ever seen and certainly the ones that have ever got the best sort of feedback from customers and from end users in their own homes if you like are the ones that have actually worked on or developed those softer skills that have have by and large done it unconsciously because they've never been putting any training to do it they've just developed that as a person as a result of actually who they are and the people that they're around and the more that we can look at that kind of stuff the better businesses we're going to have going forward because they'll be better placed to serve their clients. Yeah, yeah. I um I run a company called New Heat and we do uh, underfloor heating and uh, and, and renewables and uh, we're we're very values driven. The business has been going for thirty years. I've not been there for thirty years, but uh, but uh, but it's always been quite values quite values driven business. And uh, when when I joined there seven years ago. There's a couple of things that really leapt out at me. There was lots and lots of really good, strong technical capability, but to take the business to the next level, what I needed was was leadership. And there were some great leaders there. Don't get me wrong; they're still still are today. But doing that in a kind of a um, uh, an intentional way, uh, and, and making sure that you've got leaders all over the business. So developing that leadership capability all over the business. Uh, but the first the first part of that really was about the values. So when you talk about how you recruit people and and their technical ability, yeah, of course you need to understand the technical ability or the aptitude for learning the technical skills they need to, to do the job. But actually, the primary thing for me is 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 the values. Because if an organization's got a set of values that they're living by, working by, and I don't mean the sort of values that you stick on a wall and forget about. I mean the values that actually come from the people who work in the in the organization and actually when you talk to the customers of that organization they're the things that make actually that customer want to do business with that with that organization because that's why they trust them that's why they've got the relationship that's why they've got the rapport so if you can recruit and develop people and recognize people maybe even reward or incentivize people based around how they exhibit those values uh, and of course, you provide the training on that, but also on on the skills to do the job. Then you've got a team of people then who are all going to be, you know, aligned in the way they think about things and the way they behave. Happy to call each other out when they see behaviours that don't quite scan with that. And then far better equipped then to work together to solve the problems that come up every day. You've mentioned a number of them, uh, but in the construction trade, but in, in any sort of trade. There is. I mean, you're in business basically to solve a problem for somebody else because uh, you've got that expertise, and that's why people want to buy from you is because you solve problems. Uh, but how you work together to actually do that is is so so crucial. So, for your point of view, um, values. What what are your values, and 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 how do they play through in the businesses that you're part of? Okay. Uh, well, what a subject, huh? Um, Values is something I'm really, really passionate about. And actually, we're looking at setting up another business at the moment. And 
we've got a couple of different options on the table. And I was having this conversation with my wife yesterday. Um, it all comes from values. Recruitment all comes from values. And partnerships all come. You can't partner with someone who hasn't got the same values. The challenge, I think, comes when, and I found this really fascinating, when, so one of my coaches I've worked with for a number of years, um, I've got coaches for a reason, some for a season, and a, and a couple that I work with for life. And one of the ones that I'm, I will work with for life, every year, we go and have breakfast and we go through, and he asks me a number of questions and look at values. And it's really interesting that my values remain consistent, but the way they're stacked changes in terms of order of programs. One and two tend not to move around too much. Um, and my first one is education. My second one is helping others. Mm-hmm. Um, they tend to, they don't tend to move too much. They're pretty, pretty consistent. Um, my others are about working honestly, working with integrity, uh, being, trying to be innovative and creative, um, support other people with their problems, um, and grow wealth for clients and for, for our businesses. Essentially, that's, you know, that's what we're here to do. Um, but I think coming back to your, your point about recruitment, the technical, you can teach, like, I mean, I've always had this thing, you can teach anyone anything. You can't teach them to be motivated, driven, honest, work with integrity, work innovatively. But in, the difficulty comes quite often, and I see this loads. And I used to see it a lot when I used to do due diligence for um, a business acquisitions company. You'd go into a company on the first day, and it'd be like somewhere in reception or in a meeting room or somewhere. It would be a, va- a value statement or some like swanky infographic. Or, and one of the things that I used to ask people, apart from trying to sort of drill down into their numbers and where the company was at, was I'd say to like different members of staff, like, so can you give me an example of of how these values fit into what you do? And the amount of people that would look at you like you were talking Swahili. Or say, well, I don't know, I'm, I, I can't give you an example because I'm not sure, I can't remember what they are. We did that exercise a long time ago. And it's like, seriously? They're not, they're not really the business's values, are they? Their values should be come from the people that work within the business and collectively be pulled together. And they need to be like the first absolute bastion that you go to to look at when you're recruiting a new member of staff. And if that person doesn't align with all of those values, they could have the best technical skill set, but if their mindset isn't right, i.e. because their values don't align with the existing business values, that's never going to be a successful recipe. Yeah, I totally agree. Totally agree. And when uh, when I when I recruit, one of the first questions that I ask is, "What are our values?" And uh, and there's only there's only been one occasion when uh, when I've employed somebody who's not got that question right uh, first time. And uh, and I I learned from that mistake because and I won't do it again. Uh, but um, but yeah. So I, I, you've, I think you've got to be really really clear on that and and make sure that you yeah you, you understand. It, you know, if if values are important to you, then you absolutely have to do it. And if values, if you don't think values are are as important, I think you need to ask yourself the question why. And perhaps look at where the challenges and obstacles come up in your business, and see if if you can identify the cause of that. And 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 I'm I'm you know pretty confident that most of the challenges in companies that stop them from growing, delivering a great service, whatever it is they're trying to do, uh, will be as a result of that mismatch between those values and and the way people behave. Yeah, definitely. It's just been a misalignment somewhere and. And the problem, you know, I mean, construct, not in construction necessarily, but in general, wider industry as a whole, I've seen in construction, but it's probably because of where I've spent most of my life, is that recruitment is the one thing that you need to put most of your energy in to get right. And instead, it's the thing that gets done at the end of the day when someone's chasing you for feedback on a load of CVs or, shit, we've got a project starting in four weeks, we need somebody to run that, or, my God, we've got 10 bids coming in, we need somebody to support the bid team. And it's never, ever given the right amount of time. And quite often, even the best decisions are taken based on the fact that actually we've got a technical or a physical need to put a bomb on a seat or for a specific skill. And the difficulty with that is that it puts so much pressure on the hiring manager to fulfil that role because without that, 
the project or the task or whatever it is can't move forward, that quite often, even if they're aware of recruiting from a values-based recruitment, that would get shifted to the side because there's a there's an even bigger need to get that person into the business and started. And you've only got to look at the crap way that companies induct people. The amount of people that you see, and they're like, oh, I started a job today. Oh, how'd it go? Yeah, well, I just was told to get on with it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I did a post. I, mean, I think it's probably one of one of the most popular posts I've ever done on LinkedIn was when we hired a contracts manager. And we, we, it was just a screenshot of the bloke's desk. And like, like, bang, this is how, this is what we're doing. This is what people are like, what? What do you mean? Well, what? So for a week, you're just going to spend like doing an induction. Like, well, why wouldn't I do that? How, how can I expect a person to be successful? We don't invest the time in getting them to understand what our processes are, what our procedures are, how we operate, who our clients are, what our service offering is, how we go about doing that, and what, what we perceive as good, bad, and, and ugly behavior. We don't do all of that. How can we? We're setting a person up to fail, surely. Yeah, yeah. And the amount of people that were like, "You must have too much time on your hands. Hmm. You're like, you don't belong in construction. This is just bollocks. You don't need to do all this stuff." And I'm like, seriously, it's twenty twenty. It was actually twenty twenty, because hmm. um, it was literally within like about thirty days of COVID happening. We'd offered for this guy, and we were like, "Fuck, what are we going to do? We've got, we've got to stand over this off." <laughs> so it caused us a world of financial pain. Yeah. Um, but we still went about it and did the you know did the best that we could to to give the guy a smooth on boarding and and make it happen because you've got at the end of the day you've got to be fair to that person and I see so many people on LinkedIn especially which is kind of like the place I tend to hang out was more so although I'm on Facebook a little bit more recently um, and the amount of people that are like oh so and so's leaving I can't believe it his attitude was shit he wanted to go so I've let him go and just put him on guard and leave and People's loyalty is to their values. It's not to your company. And I had to learn that the hard way. And I think some of the most valuable lessons that any of us learn in life are always, you know, as a result of some some form of hardship or something. Because, you know, life's there to teach you a lesson. And if it's not hard, you don't learn the lesson, do you? So, but people, you know, people's loyalty is to their own values. And, you know, there's one one particular guy a few years back now, um, and his highest value was family. And he's, you know, he would come in, but if you asked him to sort of stay like five minutes late, it's like, no, I've, I've gone home to and time with my family. And I was like, well, hold on a minute, we've got to get this done. And like, I'm going home. <laughs> and I think the thing that I learned was no one has the right to expect loyalty from someone else to something that doesn't fit with their values. Mm, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you want people to be true to themselves, and it's down to Absolutely. you, down to you, when you're picking people on your team to to understand that before you've made that offer. Because if there's whatever conflict, and it doesn't necessarily mean you know somebody's values are, are are bad or lower than yours, they're just different, aren't they? And if they're different and exactly. they're not not what you need, then um, then it can be anything. It's it, that's going to be the thing that's getting in the way. Yeah, and I think that that's. A- I had to learn a lot of lessons really hard, really quickly when I got made into site manager and contracts manager at 26 because I was managing a team of over 150 people. Some of them were like 45, 50 years old, you know. And I didn't. I had loads of training on commercials and contracts and setting jobs up, but at that point, I had not had any training on managing people. And I probably, if there was a Guinness World Record for the poniest manager. <laughs> I think I probably would have won it because I was shocking. Mm. I made some awful decisions. I wasn't always terribly nice. Um, the construction industry was a little bit different 20 years ago. Not a lot, but a little bit. Um, and, um, yeah, um, I probably wasn't the nicest person to be around. But one of the things that I did learn was that whether my values and your values are the same or different is irrelevant. Yours are no better than mine, and mine are no better than yours. We're all unique human beings and at the end of the day we have the right to choose what our own values are but one of the hardest ones that i found and sometimes i do still struggle with is i am i am i'm either 150 miles an hour or i'm like i'm out for the count and sometimes when i'm like absolutely on point and firing on the beard of bang and i want to get something done someone else is like well yeah all right i'll see you at 9am we'll sort of we'll have a meeting there i'm like what's wrong with five o'clock <laughs> I want to get this shit done. It's got to get nailed. What's the matter with you? 
And, I, and even now, I still struggle with that sometimes, I've got to be honest. Um, but that's just recognising that somebody else might value their self-care and, and their sleep. That might be something that they value more than working towards whatever the common common objective or goal it, it is we're working on. So I don't think we're ever fit, fully perfect in that regard. I think we're all to a degree of work in progress sometimes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And understanding each other and each other's preferences is important as well. Because there's there's a couple of people that that, that I work with who who who've got different, um, you know, t- they're 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 more active and and more up for problem solving at different times of the day. Perhaps to 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 me, you know, for me, my my working time on on uh, you know, alone for me is it has to be in the morning. I'm much more productive on working alone in the morning on stuff. And then a good time for me for meetings is in the afternoon. But if I expect to impose that on anybody else, then, or sorry, everybody else all of the time, then it's just not going to work because I know that other people, uh, you know, thrive on that kind of, you know, get up and interaction first thing and, and all that. So you've got to mix it up really to get the best out of your team and, and investing that time and understanding how the people you're working with, uh, you know, what their preferences are like and, and, and and all of that is 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 massive. We're going through a process uh, now of, um, of of evolving some of that some of that leadership stuff and some of that interplay. And uh, and and our HR manager uh, at New Heat is brilliant, and and uh, she's um, given us a little reminder the day before the meeting about our preferences. We use insights discovery, so what each other's preferences are. So when we're communicating with each other then we uh, communicate with people in the way that they want to be communicated with, not the way that we want to be communicated with. Absolutely. Because you're looking for those outcomes, aren't you? And if you can... That's what it's about. Yeah, yeah. If you can empathise and, and, and work with other people uh, and, and treat people as they want to be treated, then you're going to get more out of the relationships you've got with other people. Yeah, of course. And I think the other thing that... One thing I did a, year, a number of years ago, or two things that I'll share with you, which are both are really useful... One is the difference between people's individual Myers-Briggs and their group Myers-Briggs, and that's fascinating because people behave completely differently in a team environment how they do in a one-to-one. And the other one was an exercise that I did, and I still do, um, where at the start of a meeting we would would, um, ask people where they're at on a scale of one to ten in personal and in business, and that's really insightful. Because you can then get a better understanding of where that, how receptive that person is to, to participation, to taking on board new information, and to dealing with challenges and that kind of thing. So it's a really weird, and it, you know, some people are like, oh, what a waste of time. It doesn't have to add, you know, it takes like the first probably like 10, 15 minutes of a meeting if you've got a decent amount of people around the table. Mm. But the payback is absolutely phenomenal in terms of being able to get a point across, have a better understanding and work out what where you need to be putting your empathy in the room, yeah. different people around the table to make sure that everybody feels like they've got an opportunity to be heard and everybody gets, gets the opportunity to put across what they want to say, but also so that different people, so if somebody's a one personally and you see them like daydreaming and like drifting out of the window, it's not because they don't want to be in the meeting necessarily, but they might have something really important going on outside of that environment. It might be a child's parents' evening or, you know, a PE day or you know, a, a, a school sports day or something. Yeah, yeah. So it's just about having a better depth of understanding of other people. Yeah, really good idea, that. Love that. Meet people where they're at and, uh, yeah, absolutely yeah, exactly. right. Yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah. Cool, okay, so you've, men- you've mentioned a couple of things, um, just to just to sort of, just a couple of questions on a couple of things that you mentioned. So you've mentioned... Uh, imposter syndrome and you've also mentioned uh, how much you value personal development so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, about sort of if you like that imposter syndrome thing and, and perhaps where that comes from mm-hmm. yep. and also how personal development has helped you to to, to manage and, and work with that um, okay so yeah I mean I think probably a healthy portion of my imposter syndrome is related to two things. One, that I didn't um, follow a traditional educational journey um, into construction management um, when compared to a lot of my peers um, and a lot of people client side who are typically chartered um, made me really, really suffer from imposter syndrome, certainly at a young age. 
Um, I say young age, I'm talking about young age professionally. Um, but I do think probably a big part of that probably was the fact that we moved house three times when I was quite young. Um, so I was born in Birmingham. I moved when I was eight to Bristol, um, which is, you know, it's only 150 miles down the motorway. But in terms of like dialect, accent, um, where they're both at in the curriculum um, is massively different. Um, and I never really fitted in. Um, and then we moved from there again when my dad got promoted again to Buckinghamshire um, at 13. And same thing again. Um, so I think part of it is to do with that. Um, and part of it is obviously to do with my career trajectory. Um, I've always had a fear of public speaking. Um, when I went up to Liverpool to run that company and found out how screwed it was and had to shut it down, um, the emotional toll that that took um, was very significant. Um, I took it personally, even though all I'd done was literally the paperwork exes make the decision that this was actually like a toxic business. Um, and then invoked the decision. It still led to, you know, millions of pounds worth of losses being crystallised um, was was a big part of it. And I lost two two friends um, to suicide um, when I was a lot younger. Um, and I've always kind of had this kind of thought at the back of my head of, well, what if, what you know, what if I'd have been a better friend and actually picked the phone up and spoken to him, um, checked in how they were, so I think there's a lot of contributory factors. I don't think it's necessarily just one thing. Um, but I think the thing that I would say is, you know, I'm no different to an awful lot of people. There's an awful lot of people that, to, to a lesser or greater extent, have some form of imposter syndrome. And, you know, that doesn't have to manifest itself in a professional way. There's a lot of people that are in relationships where they've got imposter syndrome because, you know, it's the age old saying, oh, he's punching above his weight. You know, there's you know that comes from somewhere. That mm. comes from from subconscious stories that we talk about and we tell ourselves. Yeah. That's you know, there's there's some imposter syndrome in there. There's all manner of places it comes. You know, I've seen it like with young lads that are playing rugby and, and sports fields, and they're there because their parents want them to be there, not because they actually feel that they want to play and they don't feel that they're good enough to be on the team, and that impacts and you know that can lead to like injuries and stuff. So I think there's a Imposter syndrome is one of those things that it's it's massively underplayed. There's a lot of people that don't want to talk about it. Um, one of the things that I talked about in my TED talk was actually being prepared to be vulnerable, you know, but having the courage to be the person that says I love you first. Having the courage to be the person that that's you know walks into a net networking event and doesn't just like hide looking at their phone in plain view, you know. There's lots of different examples of, of that. Being the person that's sitting in a board meeting, trying to come up, brainstorm ideas and being prepared to say, well, what about if we try this? It's, it's being prepared to be a little bit vulnerable. And, and that's really hard. And that's something that in England we do not promote. Mm. We're very much a stiff upper lip. Don't speak out about stuff. Keep play your cards close to your chest. Why would you want to do that? And yet, actually, the problem is that you can't have creativity if you don't have vulnerability. Yeah. Because if people aren't prepared to be vulnerable, they're not going to talk about something that is a potentially a creative idea because, you know, to, to be, and probably, I don't know what the stats are, but I would like to hazard a guess that the, there's an, probably a majority of companies somewhere in their value stack, it says we want to be innovative. You know, it's the modern sort of like sort of Simon Sinek value, isn't it? Yeah. And it's and and yet, how many companies actually stifle the creativity of their teams because people are, are shut on from a great height if a new idea doesn't work, or you know they're not given the budget to try something out, or they're fearful of speaking up amongst their peers, and all of that serves to just create greater levels of imposter syndrome because people feel like. They don't feel worthy of sharing their story. They don't feel worthy of sharing potentially new ideas of ways to solve problems. And it's only ever going to get sort of not eradicated, but, but reduced if people are prepared to own that and talk about it. Mm. So, and go on. That's one of the things that, you know, I feel feel is part of the reason I was put on this earth. I 
I I'm, I make no secret of the fact that I've had counselling. Um, one of I think probably the most important posts that I've ever done on social media, which caused massive carnage um, with certain parts of my family. Um, my personal coach, who I've worked with for years, asked me to change my password on my social media and told me I shouldn't do it. But I did a video about the fact I was going to go and see a counsellor. Mm. Um, helped loads of people privately, personally, um, and, and potentially lots of people that I've probably never even spoken to. But one person reached out to me and said, it's right for you. Mm-hmm. you're your own boss it's your company you can talk about what the fuck you like you haven't got to worry about having a managing director breathing down your neck how do you think my boss would feel if I went on social media saying that I'm having a nervous breakdown and actually I work for one of the biggest building surveying companies in the country and I found that quite tough mm. and you know I wasn't in the best place at the time and I sort of took some time afterwards and thought about it and I thought guy's got a point I do have it luxury maybe to put a title on it that that I can talk about anything I want to talk about um I don't have to particularly obviously I've got to be mindful I've got family and you know I wouldn't want anything out there that would cause embarrassment to my children but by the same token you find embarrassment because they're not particularly impressed that I've done interviews on the menopause but there you go (laughs) there's another story yeah and I think my my takeaway from that really was that we need to talk about this sort of stuff Mm. and that and the work that I've done on my own mindset with coaching, mentoring, the NLP stuff, I want to understand as much about myself as I can and as much about those subjects so that I can better understand me, but I can better understand people, communicate better, communicate more deeply, convey ideas, help and support other people personally, um, fulfil their ambition, understand what potential that exists within the young people that I work with mm. to go on to actually be able to to not only fulfil that potential, um, but actually lead really, really positive lives and have really great outcomes. And that's what I want to spend more of my life doing. You know, anybody can go and build buildings and fix buildings. Not everyone's prepared to step up and do that sort of stuff. And and that's why I enjoy doing it. And, you know, if I didn't need to do anything to generate income to pay bills and stuff, that's what I'd be doing 100% of the time is supporting other people. Yeah, sure, sure. And I think it is interesting because, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I know people who work for, for, for big, big PLCs who, again, feel like there's certain things that they they can't say that they don't want to say. Uh, but by the same token, some some, you know, some some of those organizations, they have a culture of openness and it's a bit about the individual as well, isn't it? So but I think, yeah, so, uh, it's, it's important that that if you're in a position where you can speak publicly about these sorts of things that that you do it and if you feel moved to do it that you continue to do it because that's actually part of what you know brings forth the changes because you know if you look back 20 30 years there are things that we couldn't talk about then that we can talk about now you know, and, and absolutely, and the conversation start got to start somewhere, hasn't it? And you know, well, yeah. we're, we're, there's mental health awareness uh, week and mental health World Mental Health Day. Those kind of uh, days, the opportunity uh, is there to talk about it on those days. But we need to continue the conversation after that. And the themes have been in and around, you know, time to talk uh, in and around loneliness, i.e., communication with others. And uh, and the, you know the, the the themes that they're selecting are because that's the areas where people are experiencing uh, most uh, most challenges. And as you say, it's um, I think it's one in four people every single year has some kind of uh, you know mental health uh, issue, whatever that yep. means. Um, and uh, and 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 really talking about it. If you can't talk about it in public on social media, uh, but you can talk about it with somebody. Then, then, then you really need to do that. You've got to look after yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, it's a shocking statistic, but two people, in, two men in construction commit suicide every day. Yeah. Well, you know, that's, that's disgusting and it's wrong. We need to be creating a better industry. We need better support for people, whatever industry they work in. And it, it needs to be as easy for someone to access support to talk about and get some support with their mental health as it does with their physical health with a broken leg or fractured jaw you know it's but that sounds brutal isn't it a fractured jaw <laughs> um but 
you know, it needs, we need to normalise that conversation. And the only way that that is going to happen is by people talking about it more, yeah. normalising the fact that it's okay to talk about it and own up to the fact that, that, that that's what's going on for you. Yeah. And then actually go out and seek help. But the, the, the other challenge with that, though, is that the support needs to be there for those people to go and access. And right now, 99.9% of the NHS budget is on physical health. And, mm an absolute tiny disproportionately small amount is actually on mental health. And that in itself needs a redressing. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very true. Very true. Good. Okay. So, um, when you're, uh, you know, contemplating your future and, uh, and, and the things that you'd like to do, uh, what, what's, what's going to come next for you? What's going to come next for me? Well, we're looking at launching some training products, um, we are formalising the mentoring and stuff that we're doing with some of the clients um, in response to feedback we've had from people. Um, I've got some pretty big, hairy-ass goals that I want to um, want to create by the time that I'm 60 um, that are pretty massive um, in terms of creating um, a sort of a form of convalescence home for people that are in construction um, and a load of supported living around that sort of stuff. Um, and my goal really is to build a big enough property portfolio that we can use the profits, some of the profits from that to actually fund that and then gift it into a charity. That's, that's ultimately what my legacy has been. Okay. Brilliant. Well, that sounds great. Well, Richard, this has been a fantastic conversation. We've talked now for nearly an hour. I can't believe that I know, we've got. It doesn't feel like we've we've, we've we've talked for so long. So, so I've got a couple of questions just to finish off on, if that's okay. Uh, yeah, one one is uh, who who inspires you the most and why? Who inspires me the most? Um, there are people that have achieved tremendous things in sport against all odds that I find remarkably inspiring. Um, there are normal human bit like everyday people um, that have overcome tremendous physical challenges um, that and again that I find remarkably inspiring um, there's a lady called Cor Hutton who's got a charity called Finding Your Feet who's one of those um, there are some sports people um, that I find quite inspiring um, there are certainly captains of industry um, that I find quite inspiring I don't necessarily agree with everything they do or say um, and there are some there are some normal people, you know, that that every day I find, I find my children inspiring. You know the things that they do. I mean, my daughter's twelve. She had long. She had COVID. She had long COVID. She could barely like breathe, and yet she's like in the pool at the weekend, knocking out three personal breaths on strokes she's never had times for until a month ago. You know, I find that inspiring. Um, yes, there's the kind of the typical sort of YouTube sort of motivational stuff that, and some of that actually can be quite inspiring. Um, I think if I had to pick one thing or one quote, it probably would be, I don't think I could separate the two. So I'm going to cheat a little bit and I'm going to say the two. Yeah. One is Dr. Rick Rigsby's um, commencement speech um, about his dad and about comb combining knowledge and wisdom to have an impact. And that's something that's never, ever leaves me. It's something that I think about every day. Um, and the other one is William McCraven's speech about making you better every day. Okay, brilliant. Because it is the small, small, small details. Just like David Brailsford says about his Sky Team, it's the little bits every day that consistently add up to the difference. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, cool. Well, we'll put probably we'll probably put links to those two speeches in the uh, in the show notes if we can, so people can uh, check that out. That's yeah, great. Cool, cool. Thank you. And um, and then I suppose final question really is: What advice would you give to somebody who wants to find and follow their purpose? Okay, I would, two things, I would start off with what are your values, um, because everything needs to come from that, otherwise you won't enjoy doing it, you won't be successful in doing it, because you won't be being true to yourself. Um, and then, this is going to sound really bizarre, start off with what you don't want to do, because there are so many jobs out there that it is impossible to just find the one that you want to do straight away. So start off with the stuff that you don't want to do, and gradually work your way backwards. So we like, I love talking about reverse engineering. That's just a, po a posh word for doing it backwards. <laughs> but work out backwards. And then the other thing that I would say is that don't get so busy making a career that you forget to make yourself a life. 
Fantastic. Richard, thank you ever so much for coming on the show. Um, how can people find out more about you and follow your work? Uh, for me. Um, I'll send you a link to my link tree, um, which has got all my social media and stuff on there. I'm on Facebook, I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on social, I'm on um, Instagram. Um, so just, yeah, Richard Stone on, on most of those platforms. Fantastic. And when you get that course knocked up, let me know. I'll definitely sign up. Yeah, no, I definitely will. Brilliant. Brilliant. All right. Thanks for coming on, Richard. Cheers, David. Take care. care. Speak soon. Cheers. Thanks for listening to People With Purpose. I hope you've enjoyed the show and are enjoying going on this journey. Please remember to like and subscribe and give us a five-star review. Uh, Tell all your friends. And if you're interested in finding out more about any of the things we've covered in this episode of People With Purpose, just get in touch. All the details are in the show notes. Thanks. Bye.